Uh, well, good evening, uh, everybody. Uh, welcome to this LSE Ideas uh, public lecture uh, this evening. Firstly, let me introduce myself. My name is Professor Michael Cox. I keep being elevated to chair of the LSE, but I must tell the boss. Uh, it's very generous. Uh, but I'm actually the founding, one of the founding directors of Ideas, and I'm still in the International Relations Department, and I founded Ideas many years back with my old compañero, uh, Professor Arnie Westad, who's in the audience this evening. I think one of the great, and uh, Arnie and I think, uh, significant achievements of Ideas over the years has been to act as a platform and a catalyst for public debate. And within that, I'd say the most important platform for debate we've created has been made possible by the creation of the Philip Roman Chair in History and International Affairs. I almost like to say the list of Romans we have had uh, in this uh, position over the last few years reads like the who's who of international history. Uh, Paul Kennedy, uh, Chen Jian, Gilles Capel, Neil Ferguson, Ramachandra Guha, and Applebaum, and this year uh, Professor Timothy Snyder of uh, Yale University, which only leads me to give very special thanks uh, to Emmanuel Roman, who is also in the audience tonight, for both his great generosity and equally great vision in supporting the chair throughout these years. We hope this relationship continues uh, as it has done so successfully in the past. Thank you, Emmanuel. Uh, Tim Snyder, I think, needs a little introduction, but I'm here to give the introduction. Uh, he was educated at Brown uh, University and then uh, at Oxford where he did his PhD and worked, if not under, at least alongside and with the then well, the great uh, Polish uh, writer, Leszek uh, Kolakowski. Um, Tim has so many achievements to its name, I don't really want to begin. One of them is that he speaks five languages and reads ten. I suppose the one he doesn't read is Welsh. Uh, he is a prolific author across, across the range, although I suppose it's most controversial don't know if most significant, but certainly most controversial book, which will be on sale here tonight, which is one of the reasons I mentioned, of course, is Bloodlands. Tim also, I think, had the privilege of working with one of the great European historians of the late 20th century, uh, the late great uh, Tony Judd. Tim, of course, is not exactly standing still, because according to the, the notes I have, Tim, you're planning four more books, one on Marx, one on the Holocaust, one on Eastern Europe, and one called A Family History of Nationalism. So when you come back in 25 years' time, perhaps we can get you to lecture on one of those. On the 15th of October, Tim gave a wonderful, masterly lecture here on the origins of nations, and tonight he tackles an equally important, controversial topic, the origins of revolution, Marx, and Eastern Europe. I wonder if you could give a very good LSE welcome to Professor Tim Snyder. Tim.
So this is not a subject like other subjects. This, this, the subject of this lecture is not, is not something that's entirely in the past. This is not a book that I have written. This is not something that's complete, in which I'm going to give you a sort of run-through. Um, the, the, the four books that Professor Cox was kind enough to mention are indeed the ones that I'm working on or, 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 or have written. The Marx one, in a way, is, 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 is the hardest one, and I want to start out with a, try, try to give you an idea of, of, of why. Um, in, in, Marx is difficult for us, I think, above all. And I'm going to start on the respectful note, and you'll notice that I'm going to keep up the respectful note. Marx is difficult for us above all because Marx was a superior genius. We, when we deal with Marx, we are clearly dealing with a superior mind. We're dealing with a mind which we will find difficult to understand, even if we are properly trained. And this is the second part of why it's so difficult. Even if we are properly trained in the German philosophy, which was there at his beginnings, the philosophical concerns of Marx at the beginning, the, the idea um, that one's own species essence, one's own nature could somehow be squared with the world outside, the notion that the fragmentation of, of, of being and belonging could somehow be overcome, this philosophical setting is incredibly difficult us. I mean, I'm sure there are seven of you out there who you know, are master Kantians and are shaking your head and saying, if Snyder doesn't understand this stuff, the rest of the lecture is going to be horrible. But it's, I think it's authentically the case that um, the, the moment of, of late Hegelianism is a difficult moment for us. Another reason why Marx is hard, or let's put it this way, another, another plausible excuse we have for not taking Marx seriously has to do with the succession. That is to say, as one moves forward in time from Marx to those of us, see, they're already whispering. He's saying, like, Slider doesn't get Hegel, and she's saying he doesn't get Kant. Um, there's the, the, yeah, that was, that was you two I was talking about. Um, the, the closer we get in time to ourselves, the, the, the more uninteresting and indeed repulsive the chain seems to come. I mean, if you, look at a, if you look at a Soviet banner or a Chinese one, when you go from Marx to Engels and then Engels to Lenin and then Lenin to Stalin, at each grade, at each step of approach, the thought is less interesting um, the, the, and the figure is less interesting. And then as you become closer, um, you move into this realm of, 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 of moral repulsion. The final reason, I think, that we find it easy not to engage with Marx, or appropriate not to engage with Marx, has to do with the political failure of the Soviet Union, obviously. All of us now live in, and many of us were born into a world in which the Soviet Union either failed or simply no longer exists. It was always already gone, from our point of view. So, And there was all the political failure of the Soviet Union, and to some extent, um, the, the, the unannounced conversion of the People's Republic of China, is a general dismissal of the idea of Marxism. And this is where I want to start. I want to start with the notion that the dismissal of Marxism is actually impossible. That is to say, um, if it's true, you can't actually dismiss it. Um, if it's true, your dismissal of Marxism is simply a function of the particular matrix of social and economic relations in which you find yourself. If you find yourself actively dismissing Marxism, if you find you have a concern with dismissing Marxism, if you find it's not something which leaves you cold, as I hope it isn't, that is a reflection of where you happen to sit in a particular historical moment. In other words, if you are dismissing Marxism, you're also affirming it. Uh, Marx spins in his grave the same way, whether you approve him or whether you dismiss him. 
it's all the same thing to him. He's still right as far as he's concerned. In other words, Marxism for a historian is a particular sort of challenge. Marx for a historian is a particular sort of challenge because Marx is not a subject per se. It's not something on which you get to have views, at least not without a certain amount of struggle. Marxism is itself, Marx himself had a view about history which claimed to embrace history itself. It claimed to be a view which is larger than history. And admittedly for historians, that's difficult. That's a bit of a slap in the face because we're used to being the most imperialist of all disciplines, right? What endeavor is there which our hands cannot touch and change? What subject is there that we cannot write about and make our own? What, what is there that we cannot turn into narrative, right? Um, and yet Marxism resists, I would say, in a way that few things resist. When you look at Marxism, if you're actually looking at Marxism, it looks back. And that can be unnerving. So what I'm going to try to do in this lecture are two things. I'm going to try, insofar as I'm able, to characterize Marxism properly as a view of the world, as a view of history, and try, insofar as I can, to criticize it when I do criticize it on its own terms. But I also am going to try, um, again, insofar as I can, to see it historically, to see it as a, a force in and of itself, as an idea which has actually changed events. I'm not going to take it for granted that I can do this. I'm going to try not to be hasty in dismissing it or hasty in categorizing it or hasty in wrapping it up. I'm going to try to see it as a historical fact, but I'm not going to take it that this is easy. I'm not going to take it that this is easy or self-evident. That said, here comes the historian's push. So the historian can see um, pretty easily that this was probably the most important idea of the last century. Um, the historian can see that it was certainly crucial. The historian of Eastern Europe can see that it was certainly crucial in Eastern Europe. Uh, revolutions having to do with Marx or Marxism turn out to be very many indeed. Right? There wasn't just one, as Marx expected, but in fact, with astonishing frequency and even regularity, every dozen years or so on the continent of Europe, there was a fairly major revolution which either was Marxist, anti-Marxist, had something to do with Marxist, or I'm going to claim now was Marxist, even though it claimed not to be at the time. Um, 1917, 1930, 1945, 1956, 1968, 1980, and 1989, that's actually a fair bundle. Right? That's a good passel of revolution you've got there. And all of it had to do with Marxism in one way or another. Now, if we're going to consider, though, Marxism as historical force, which I'm hoping by the end I'll be able to get to, um, we do have to know why it mattered so much. In other words, we have to, the two questions go together. If we're going to see Marxism as a historical force, as something which mattered in the world, as something which changed people's minds and lives, and something which changed regimes on a regular basis, we have to know why it was appealing, and so we have to know what it meant. In other words, its force was in its content. So let's try to give that a fair shake. Marx, as he was and as he was understood. Now, in doing this, here comes another qualification. I'm going to talk about Marx as he was understood by himself and as he was understood by people who matter, but I'm also going to talk a bit about how Marx was understood by people who did not matter at all. Um, or to put it another way, since I'm, making, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to embrace you in my big, huge Hegelian totality, in case you haven't noticed, people who don't matter yet. Right? The assumption here is that the history of ideas is not, in fact, over, um, that it is going on. Right? Marx wrote his doctoral dissertation about Democritus and Epicurus. Uh, 
if people are writing doctoral dissertations 2,000 years from now, they will be writing them about Marx. And if you don't think that's true, I mean, if you think they won't be writing doctoral dissertations, okay, that's trivial. I can complain as a professional academic, too. They'll be writing 20-word emails instead. If people are writing doctoral dissertations in 2,000 years, they will probably be about Marx. If you don't think that's true, ask yourself, who else? Right? So the, the, what, which other thinker of our period will these dissertations be about? So I'm assuming that the history of ideas goes on and that some of the people in this tradition who we don't know about who have been forgotten, um, who died of tuberculosis at the age of 33, or whatever it might have been, might come to matter later on. So, okay, all that said, who was Marx? Marx was a kind of historian of his own present. He was a political journalist. This is the easiest way to read Marx. He was a political journalist who wrote about Russia, who wrote about Poland, who wrote about the United States, who wrote about pretty much everything in the New York Tribune and elsewhere. Uh, as, as political journalist, too, he had to do. He had his favorite horses. He picked horses. He bet on horses. He rooted for some of the winners. He rooted for some of the losers. For example, he definitely preferred the Americans to the Indians. Right there, he was rooting for the winners. On the other hand, um, he certainly preferred Poland over the Russian Empire. He and Engels, in particular, had a very soft spot for the Poles. They thought that Poland should be restored in its boundaries of 1772. And if the boundaries of 1772 don't arise automatically in your hearts, a kind of sacred geography, that means um, most of Ukraine, most of Belarus, some of Russia, very expansive boundaries are what they had in mind. The political logic was that the Russian autocracy was the center of reaction in Europe. So he was a historian of his own time. He was a political journalist who had ideas about what was progressive and what wouldn't be progressive. He was also, and this is the hard part, he was also a kind of historian of the future, he was, he was someone who took Hegel's philosophy and denied that Hegelianism only applied to the past. His, his main modification of Hegel was that Hegelianism also applies to the future. His central argument, if I can try to encapsulate it in about three minutes, goes something like this. That history, the past as it's happened, has been a process of the alienation of human beings from their labor, from themselves. But, and so this thing which alienates us, the thing which defines our alienation for Marx, is the division of labor. Um, the fact that some of us do some things, other of us do other things, none of us is in touch with the whole at any point in the process. This has historical origins. The magical part of the thinking is that if you resolve the division of labor, history will, in some sense, end. That history will, that we will then, if, if, our divi if the division of labor comes to an end, our sense of alienation will come to an end. And history, at least in the sense of the difference between seeing and doing, the distance between uh, working and, and engaging with the product of your labor, that these distances will all kind of come to an end. That's the essence of Marx. From there, it goes on to other things, and we'll talk about these other things as time goes on, but that's the essential point. The essential concern is the alienation of human beings from themselves, from their labors. The essential claim is this is, a his this is a product of history, and the essential optimistic point is although history brings certain problems, an action can undo those problems, and the action would be the end of the division of labor, the end of capitalism, the end of private property. So history brings something, and that thing that it brings, we can use to do away with history. You see why I was a little nervous at the beginning, right? As a historian, you know these are these are these are these are deep waters. Um, now, at this point in the lecture, what you're expecting, or what you would be expecting, if you were good determinists, would be Lenin. This is where Lenin comes in. This is the part where we say Marx had this nice idea about alienation. He was friendly, except for the part about the Indians, and then comes bad Lenin. Right? Now, this is this is not the move that I want to make here. 
I will get back to Lenin. Of course, Lenin made a revolution in Eastern Europe. Of course, Lenin was an East European Marxist. Anyone who was of Jewish, German, Swedish, Russian, and Kalmyk origin cannot be thrown lightly from East European history. I will return to Lenin, but before I do this, I want to make a kind of pause, because there's a period here, there's a moment here over which I don't want to jump. That's the moment of the 1880s, 1890s, the first decade of the 20th century, the time when (coughs) Marx was dead, his writings were alive, and were understood in various ways. And there are a couple of groups I just want to flag here as Marxists um, before we move along. I don't, no, I, don't, I don't just want to flag them, because the point, is not, the point is that we're not moving from Marx to Lenin in a kind of ineluctable way. I want, to make it, I want to make it clear that these people in their own time and by their own lights were as significant as Marxists, and perhaps, obviously I'm suggesting, might be significant again. Um, one of these groups, which I find particularly interesting, um, is what you might call the East European anthropologists. The East Europeans who were particularly concerned with the side of Marx that I'm emphasizing as the alienation. These were the people who took the thinking of the Austro-Marxists and they took it even further. I, Mick said that he'd buy my dinner if I mentioned the Austro-Marxists, so here we go. Um, the Austro-Marxists had two ideas which the East European anthropologists took further. The first idea the Austro-Marxists had was there's a problem with nationality. Now, anyone who's, who's cast even a glance at the history of Soviet, the Soviet Union knows what they're talking about, that Marxism from the beginning had a problem that the nation wasn't a distinct element within the thought. This could prove to be some kind of ideological or practical contradiction as the history of the Marxist project goes on. So the Austrians who lived in a multinational empire tried to solve this problem. And the way they tried to solve it was by recognizing national self-determination at the level of our minds, and the, but not at the level of our bodies. That is to say, they recognized our right to engage in political and intellectual communities having to do with nation, and would do and go, would go to all sorts of lengths to make that possible, right down to you know, counting people in kindergarten classes, all the way up to how you could vote and where you could vote. Um, but were not willing, in general, to, to contemplate big states being broken into small states. The other thing that the Austro-Marxists were concerned about was a problem that they thought had arisen in Marxism, and that's the famous fact-value distinction. Now, if the fact-value distinction doesn't keep you up at night, um, it should. <laughs> okay. The fact-value distinction, because, no, because we, don't, we haven't solved it, right? We, ha- we haven't, just because Marxism came, just because the Soviet Union came to an end doesn't mean all of our philosophical problems went away. That's, that was the end of my lecture. I jumped to it. Okay. The the Austro-Marxists were concerned with this fact-value distinction. They thought that Marx had made a claim about the inevitable development of history, that things had to go the way they were going. The working class had to get bigger. Capitalism had to lead to ever greater inequalities. It had to collapse. They thought there arose there a problem. Just because something has to happen, right? just because a, a boulder is rolling down a mountain, for example, inevitably, doesn't mean that it's good for that to happen. And you may be even in a slightly morally problematic position if all you do is identify yourself with the things that have to happen. That may not even be morally neutral. That might be more morally bad, right? If you, if you really think might is right, are you, really, are you on the left? Um, epigram, I think, there. Uh, if you really think that might is right, can you be on the left? So they tried to solve what they took to be a problem by referring to Kant. Now... These are the problems where the Polish anthropologists went even further. With the national question, the Polish anthropologists said essentially all the things that Benedict Anderson and Ernest Gellner 
and and Eric Hobsbawm said about a century later on, they said, in fact, it turns out that industrialization leads not just to class but to national self-identification. We're going to have to take this as a, as a normal part of history. Um, we're going to make a theory of nationalism and call it Marxist. And we're going to understand that national forms of political community are going to be normal for the next little while, which was a fairly radical view among Marxists. It became the kind of standard sociological view 100 years later. With the fact-value distinction, they took the position which I think is correct, which is that in Marxism, the fact-value distinction does not actually arise. It's a misunderstanding of Marx to think that Marx is actually a determinist who claims that certain things have to happen. Once you get rid of the, once you get rid of the determinism, once you understand that for Marx, your sense of fact, that is your cognition, and your sense of value, that is your ethical capacity, that both of these things are historically located, that both of these things are a product of the historical moment in which you're engaging. And the only thing that you can do is understand that moment. The only thing that you can do is understand the historical location of your own ethical and epistemic commitments. That's what you can do to take part in the historical process. Now, whether that makes sense or not is another question to which I'll return, but that's Marx's view, and in that view, facts and values don't really arise. So, what exactly does that mean, though? And here the Polish anthropologists start to get interesting, because this whole idea that my or your cognition, my or your moral reasoning only is a result of our, the place that we are in a certain historical moment, and that what we need to do is become aware of that fact. I mean, let's imagine that I snapped my fingers, and we all sort of blinked once, and we became aware of where we were located in the historical moment, which if this were a really good lecture, I imagine would actually happen, right? Um, imagine something like that were possible. What would that then mean to be aware of yourself in the historical moment? What prevents that, in other words, from being circular, what is it about that which would be different than looking in some kind of giant mirror or worse, being in some kind of horrible mirror chamber? Wherever you looked, there was some kind of dreadful, bright, reflective totality, um, you know, like Heathrow. Where would you then draw, so to speak, your sense of reality? And here's where the Polish anthropologists get interesting. And one of the reasons they get interesting is they get all conservative. They start to claim that you get them from history. So one of them, who's called Kazimierz Kalis Kraus, had this idea that the more radical the social movement was, the further back it reached for its sources, for its images and sources of values. Right? Think of Carlyle, for example, or think of Marx and Engels themselves um, with their with their obsession of with, with primitive life, especially Engels. Another one, Stanisław Brzozowski, um, had the idea that the source of value comes from labor, but not in some kind of generic proletarian sense, that as we as individuals engage in a sort of crafty artisanal way with some particular project, then that's how we come to know ourselves. It's not a circle because there's something in between. But interestingly, it's, we don't overcome alienation as a member of a class engaging nature as such. We, if we overcome it, we only overcome it as individuals with a particular way of engaging something that we know about. Right? So there's no telescope into nature there is a workbench, essentially, and that's about as far as it gets. So the idea of a workbench, or the idea of myth, or even national myth, these are fairly conservative ideas about the sources of value which come into Marx. Okay, so where does Lenin come into all of this? The, the point that I'm trying to stress here is that Lenin is, is, is living all along with these people 18, in the 1890s, the first part of the 20th century. Lenin and Stalin, too. Um, Stalin, despite his notorious lack of languages, come along to, the, come to Vienna, and they try to puzzle through the nationality policies of the Habsburg monarchy, which they then try to make a model of their own. 
Lenin and Stalin share the Russian Empire with these Poles. These Poles I'm talking about were subject to the Russian Empire, which means that these people ran into each other, usually in, in exile. Um, Lenin and Kellis Krauss bumped into each other in a train station and had a brief exchange about national self-determination, which left, left both of them quite bitter. Um, they, Lenin shared with these people a certain understanding that Western Marxism, grosso modo, didn't make any sense. I mean, they had the thing in common that East Europeans still have a little bit when they look at us, that, like, that there are a whole lot of things that you take for granted which don't make any sense. So Lenin and these anthropological types looked at the Westerners and said, you know, all this parliamentarism that you're doing, um, all these anarchical strikes, that would be Belgium, all of this waiting around and thinking things will get better, that would be the Espada. These things don't make any sense to us because we have no parliament that we can't organize strikes and we can't even wait around. We have to do something immediately. We have to do something dramatic. Um, Lenin is living in the same world with, with these people, but he has, and here come the distinctions, he has no understanding whatsoever of the Austrian problem with fact and value. He doesn't actually get the fact-value problem. He doesn't understand why it's there. He thinks that Marxism is a kind of machine. You plug problems in, it gives you solutions. And even less does he understand these poles and their slightly conservative attempt at, at, a, human, at a human anthropology. He's in the move of thinking that, it, this, that Marxism is a science of everything. Now, I'm not trying to say that's wrong. Um, I'm just trying to say that it's different, that there are a couple of strands in the Marxist, the Marxist package, which I tried to present to you together as the, at the beginning as the same strand, which start to fall apart here. And what's, what's going on with Lenin is that he's taking on, the, he's taking on one part, the part that I'm going to call, uh, for, for lack of a more pretentious word, um, totality. What, what Lenin is concerned with is the idea that you can look at the world and you can, you can explain everything in it, not only as it is, but as it, as it ought to be. Now, um, this, was, this led Lenin to some pretty hard choices. Right? What, but what I want to stress, and now I'm going to go into my sympathetic mode with Lenin, what I want to stress is that we shouldn't imagine that, these, that, that there weren't choices either way. We shouldn't imagine that the end of the First World War was a simple time, um, that it was obvious that you should just continue to allow reactionary empires to bumble along indefinitely. Um, there were choices, and, and, and Lenin was correct to see that there was an opportunity for revolution. He proved he was correct by making that revolution. And of course, when I talk about the nice Polish anthropologists, it was pretty much a duty to die of tuberculosis. Um, at the exact age of Jesus Christ. They all did it. They got tuberculosis at 32, died at 33, um, which, meant that, uh, which meant that none of them actually lived to face this choice, which is one of the reasons why they seem so innocent. Right? They didn't actually live to face the choice of 1917, which split all the Marxists. Now, with Lenin, the criticism that is generally made about this revolution, from a Marxist point of view or from any point of view, is that Russia wasn't ready. And of course, that's easy to say. It was a peasant country. It wasn't ready. It didn't make any sense from a Marxist point of view. But there's a way in which Lenin has things absolutely right. There's a way in which Lenin has Marx absolutely right. He's correct in thinking that Marx establishes history as a kind of totality, or rather as two kinds of totality. That history, from Marx's point of view, is a kind of horizontal totality. That is, the thing that is happening in Petersburg is only one part of a much larger picture, which embraces the entire world. And you, comrade, if you focus too much on the fact that we don't have enough support in this neighborhood in Petersburg, you're overlooking that revolution in Munich, 
or you're overlooking you know, the, 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 the citrus worker strike in California, you're overlooking the crucial bit of data which is actually going to show that the revolution is coming. Right? So it's a little bit like the kind of horizontal global history that we're trying to practice these days, this sort of asynchronic look at everything at once at the same time. Right? So from that point of view, you could think 1917 is a revolutionary moment, even if in Russia we have too many peasants, even if it's not following you know, the, 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 the revolutionary scheme. If you take the whole world into account, if you take a total view, we really are in a revolutionary moment. That's Lenin's claim. Moreover, and Lenin's right about this too, Marxism has a kind of vertical totality. That is, it takes into account not just what is happening, but what must happen in the future. At some point in the future, there is that revolution. And that revolution is going to be so much better than anything we can imagine today that it makes sense to subordinate everything we do today to that revolution. So within that vertical totality, if I or you have an opportunity to push forward towards that, we have to seize it. And that 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 moment is coming means that we're right to do whatever we need to do today because that moment is so much more important than any of our petty concerns about, about now. Now, Lenin in these ways understood Marx correctly. He didn't understand all of Marx correctly, but he certainly understood that correctly. Now... The problem with getting these kinds of ideas right is that it blurs very quickly. The global vision blurs very quickly into some kind of distorted madness. The, 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 the totality blurs very quickly into kind of slavishness. Lenin, to his credit, unlike everyone else in the Second International, unlike all the other Marxists, actually took a decision. You know, hence, hence, hence the criticism that you know, we're now going to get for the rest of the lecture. Lenin, though, actually took a decision. And by taking the decision, he did something which the rest of them didn't do. He put the entire Marxist apparatus at risk, right? Lenin made a revolution. His great ideological rival, Karl Kautsky, um, and I get another, I think, three euro from Mick for mentioning that name. His great rival, Karl Kautsky, edited a newspaper, there is a basic difference in those kinds of undertakings, um, and, and, and we, should, we should recognize it. By making a revolution, Lenin exposes the whole tradition in a way that it hadn't been exposed before. The way that Marxism had worked up until that time in practice was by way of the weekly newspaper. If you got certain things wrong, there was always next week's edition in which you could correct in a letter to the editor or you know, in, a, in a thoughtful revision of your own views or whatever it might be. Um, that's what the Neue Zeit was. That's what it was there for. Um, once you actually make a revolution, that's no longer available. You're stuck with that, that choice that you made to make a revolution. And what then you find, and now here's the moment that you know, the, the history students can all stand proud, what then you find is that history takes its revenge. Because you may think you have these, these, these global understandings correctly. You may think that the, 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 the future made demands on you that were unmistakable. That may seem true to you at a certain moment, but what boring empirical chronological history says is that that moment succeeds to another moment, succeeds to another moment very quickly, and soon your claim to understand exactly what was going on at that given moment, your claim to take responsibility for the future of the world is going to look a little bit ludicrous. Um, it may seem that your, 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 your conviction, for example, that there was going to be a world revolution that was going to bail out your peasant revolution and what you yourself concede to be a backward country, that that might turn out to be not just a mistake, but a kind of horrible mistake on a world, on, on, on a world historical scale. Now, so it would seem like, okay, this was our bright moment for history. It could seem like then that history could take its revenge on the people who claim to have mastered history. It would seem like then that when the, the revolution of 1917, which was only made because of the certainty that Lenin and Trotsky as well had that there would be a revolution in Germany, that there would be a revolution in England not long after that. It would seem like here they, would kind of, they had met their match. There was no revolution. The bourgeoisie reestablished itself. The nation state dominated, etc. Um, 
So it would seem like you then would have to take a step back. And the interesting point, and now we start to get into the difficulties of Marxism in practice in the 20th century, the interesting point is that no, you don't. You don't have to step back at that point. You don't have to admit you're wrong. Um, you, you, in fact, the, the, once you have by revolution taken control of a state, taken control of a vast territory, the very things that you control, the realms and the people that you control, are, become your ability to make that prior decision right. And, and here you have, in a way, the entire history of the Soviet Union after 1917. And in particular, you have, you have the, emergent, the logic behind the emergence of Stalinism. If the whole revolution, the world doesn't make a revolution from which the world proletariat rushes to your aid, if that doesn't happen, then you have no choice but to make socialism in one country. You have no choice but to do that on the understanding that eventually that revolution from abroad will come, just at a slightly later date. Now, what seems like then to be a kind of mod minor modification, okay, so there's no socialism from abroad, we'll make socialism at home, turns out to be the most important political. So that little, that little tweak, little tweak, that little misunderstanding of 1917, leads to, and in fact forces, if you believe in totality, it forces the most important decisions in political economy, I think, in the 20th century, namely the decision to collectivize agriculture in the Soviet Union. That comes entirely from this, from this view of totality and then from this little mistake about the way things are actually going to happen. I'm going to read you a passage from um, a party congress of the Soviet Union, early 1934. It's Lazar Kaganovich talking about Stalin, talking about the collectivization, that is, in effect, the nationalization of agriculture. Kaganovich says... <clears throat> This was the greatest revolution which human history has ever known, a revolution which smashed the old economic structure and created a new collective farm system on the basis of the socialist industrialization of the country. Very quickly, by 1934, we have arrived at high Stalinism. By 1934, uh, there are no rivals. There are only, there's only Kaganovich talking about the greatest revolution in human history. The scale of mendacity is already incredible. Um, it's already Baroque. And transformations have taken place that are so dramatic and so awful that their justifications, I'm trying now to bring you into the world of Stalin, of Stalin their justifications have to be true. Uh, the, 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 the seven million people who starve to death and that effort at collectivizing agriculture, that figure and that experience is so horrifying that the claim that the collective farm system works, so to speak, has to be true. There's no choice but for that to be true. It, it can't be empirically false. That has to be true. When Kaganovich says that this is more significant than 1917, I think he's right. 1917 was a political change of regime. 1930 to 1933 was a social transformation. Um, it was taking a primarily agrarian and nomadic state and turning it into a kind of urbanized state with a toll, again, um, in human lives, which was greater than that of the revolution itself. The collectivization of agriculture. Again, remember this little thing which is triggered by this need to tweak, this need to tweak, this little misunderstanding about 1917, um, sets off a whole chain of other events. In domestic politics, um, you, you have deliberate starvation here and there, especially in Ukraine. You have essentially open-air starvation sieges of your own population, something that never before seen, been seen in history. You have the taming of the national question in general, and in Ukraine in particular, because starvation is terrifying, in a way that, especially public starvation, in a way that few other things are. You have, at the same time, the creation of the gulag, because the first large groups of people sent to the gulag were peasants who resisted, who, th who were thought to be likely to resist. 
You also have the origins of the Great Terror, the first people who were shot in the Great Terror that's going to claim about a million lives in 1937 and 1938 are, again, peasants who were thought would be likely to resist. So and then in foreign policy, you have two rather significant um, developments as well that flow directly from this. The first is that the Polish government, and this is a subject for other lectures, I'm just going to mention it, the Polish government, which had been fairly intimately involved in trying to change the Soviet Union, is shocked by this and flees into the arms of Nazi Germany. In January 1934, signs a non-aggression declaration with the Germans, which creates the impression in Berlin that Poland is going to be an ally in a future war with the Soviet Union. It's a mistaken impression, but nevertheless, it's an impression which arises directly out of the starvation. If the starvation hadn't terrified the Poles, it wouldn't have arisen. And of course, the second major consequence in foreign history, as we all know very well, is the Great Leap Forward. Without, the, without collectivization, in particular without Kaganovich's and others' claim that the collectivization had worked, the Great Leap Forward is itself unimaginable. And that's the greatest death toll, of course, of any government at any time, as far as we know. Finally, though, Think back to Marxism, what Marxism is supposed to be. Think back, if you can, away from totality and where totality has led us, back to alienation. What does this mean for alienation? You now, between actual policy and the socialist paradise, have introduced all of these intermediate steps of reason and action. Uh, communism requires capitalism first. There was no capitalism in Russia, so you have to build a likeness of capitalism. In order to do that, you have to industrialize. In order to industrialize, you need capital. In order to have capital, you have to extract it from the countryside. In order to extract capital from the countryside, you have to starve the peasantry, etc. So there are all these intermediate steps. There's no and, and this actual transformation of actual. So the actual working man in the Soviet Union, who was he? He was a peasant or a nomad taking his land away from him or her land away from her um, and making him forced essentially in a, factory on the in a factory in the city or a factory in the countryside was perhaps the greatest immediate alienation shock in the history of the world up, up until that point. If not, if not the, doing the same thing to nomads, taking nomads off their camels, forcing them in one season to learn how to be farmers, and then taking them the next season and putting them in factors, that might have been a greater alienation shock. In other words, this experience is doing the opposite. Um, it's not just that it's neutral. It's doing the opposite of what the socialist revolution was always supposed to be about. Now, this brings us to the takeovers in Eastern Europe. And I'm going to try to say something a bit different about them than what Anne Applebaum said before. The way to understand the Second World War and the takeovers in Eastern Europe is that one thing which all of this brings is the idea of the Soviet Union as a kind of end in itself. If the Soviet Union has become the homeland of socialism until further notice, if the Soviet Union is the repository, the kind of bank of socialism, it's, the, it's where socialism resides until everyone else figures out they're supposed to have their revolution, then it becomes something you have to preserve at all costs. And the logic, which Stalin understands very well, is that any threat from abroad or any threat from, from, from home, which will be associated with threats from abroad, have to be, have to be suppressed as quickly as possible. Now, this, this, this thinking, in an interesting way, just leads to very conventional statesmanship, in effect. It's not the language, I mean, it's not, it's not Henry Kissinger's account of statesmanship, um, but the, the logic is very simple, you know, very similar. We have a state, and we have to do everything we can to protect it. So you're back in a kind of 18th century world of, of sovereignty, which is covered by this idea of the homeland of socialism. Now, this leads to some very interesting and rather pragmatic um, compromises, which further, make the, which further trouble the ideology. One of them is the, is the alliance with, with Nazi Germany in 1939, which, of course, you can justify as a reasonable way to preserve the Soviet Union. It's hard to justify it any other way, but you can say it was a reasonable way to try to preserve the Soviet Union. It, it 
it worked for you know 22 months pretty pretty well after all um, but that's the only way you can possibly justify that then you have um, you have the further problem that you're invaded by Nazi Germany also a kind of ideological problem not because it means you have to admit that you're wrong I mean by this point in the lecture you understand that you cannot admit that you're wrong that's something which cannot happen in the system you understand the totality of history you can't be wrong but the fact that you're invaded by Nazi Germany means that you're exposed to millions and millions of people from the outside world the outside world from which you were supposed to be spared by socialism in one country and then worse still perhaps is winning the war against Nazi Germany because winning the war in Nazi Germany means expelling millions of your own citizens as soldiers out into that that foreign capitalist world and all of this exposure to these, to these different things. So socialism in one country, which was the kind of pragmatic reaction, pragmatic but incredibly bloody reaction to the limitations of, of Leninism, itself falls apart in this contact with the rest of the world. And you can see, you can see how it falls apart in certain, in certain changes um, to Stalinism after the war. One of them is, um, I'll just focus on one, one of them is anti-Semitism. So the, the, Leninism and Stalinism in the interwar period actually were rather good, especially by comparison with neighbors near and far, at being anti-anti-Semitic. It was by far the most successful experiment in integrating Jews into a state in the, in the modern period, I think by rather a long shot. After the Second World War, the story is a little bit different. Part of this has to do with contact with that world, but also part of it, and here I'm going to do the rather unpleasant thing of making, I'm going to do that, I'm going to, I'm going to try to resist this, so I'm going to do it once or twice. I'm going to make a Marxist argument about the Soviet Union. It, anti-Semitism has to be important in the Soviet Union and in Eastern Europe after the Second World War for very simple material reasons, and that is that the only social revolution that happens in this part of the world after collectivization is the, the seizure of property from uh, the, the five and a half million or so Jews who were murdered in Eastern Europe, which is, a, of course, a massive social transformation. And the way that the Soviet return to Eastern Europe works, and also the way the communist takeovers in Eastern Europe work, is that the people who seize the property, either as murderers of, Jew, murderers of Jews or onlookers, or people who just happen to be in the right place at the right time, those people get to keep what they have. So the signal economic and social transformation that happens is actually one that happens as a result of Nazi policy, but if the Soviets wish to have power, they can't possibly try to undo that. And so the social basis for Soviet rule has a great deal to do with the mass murder of a major population in Eastern Europe. Therefore, I'm now closing the Marxist loop, therefore it would be very difficult for anti-Semitism not to be part of the governing ideology, as indeed it was. Now, looking at the East Europe as a whole in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s, um, what do we have then? How do the East Europeans react? And again, I'm not going to try to, to, to imitate what, what N. Applebaum did. I'm just going to give you a few brief brushes of, 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 ideological, um, of ideological adaptation. There are basically two thoughts in Eastern Europe, in Poland, Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, in the 50s, 60s, about how you might perhaps change the situation that you find yourself in. You find yourself as a subject of a kind of Stalinist um, Stalinist replica regime. It's not exactly a Stalinist regime, which is rather interesting. It's not exactly the same thing. It's maybe 60% of the same thing. Some of the basic things that Stalinism involves doesn't happen. So, for example, in a true Stalinist regime, when I collectivize you, I starve you at the same time. If you want to get the full political effect of collectivization, there has to be a lot of really illustrative, or rather exemplary starvation. If you want to get the full political package, a lot of you have to die. In Eastern Europe, they collectivized deliberately without 
starvation. And, the, and it's very easy how you do it, by the way. They learned this in 1933. If you let people have a garden, they don't starve. And so in Eastern Europe, they let people have gardens during collectivization. Very simple, but it means that nobody starves, as opposed to a very significant part of the population starving. Another difference, these are sovereign states, right? Poland is not a 17th Soviet republic. Czechoslovakia is not the 18th. These are actually sovereign states. And the third difference is that the scale of violence, although considerable, is much, much less than the Soviet Union in the 1930s. It's also much, much less than the Second World War. So that these regimes, although they might seem violent by contemporary liberal standards, are a, a massive de-escalation of violence in the experience of the people at the time. Okay, so you're, faced, you're living in one of these replica regimes. How then do you think about, about Stalinism? Well, what this means, staying, to, staying close to our subject of Marx and Marxism, and not trying to dip into everything, is that you think that Marxism might, is that, that Stalinism might perhaps be subject to revision. There are political triggers for this. Stalin dies in 1953. There's a revolution in Hungary in 1956. There seems to be an opportunity in Czechoslovakia in 1968. But the general, tr- the general logic is the same everywhere. The general logic is that the really existing Soviet Union might not have exhausted all the possibilities for Marxism. There might be things back there in Lenin, or if you scratch a bit deeper, back there in Marx, especially this alienation business. Maybe that's under the layers somewhere. Maybe we could get rid of this totality obsession and go back to the alienation business. This tendency was called revisionism, and we're now into a world in which many of our, many of our teachers and, and some of us who are still with us live. This notion that there might be some kind of essence of Marxism that you could extract inside, inside this regime. Brezhnev has a very clear answer to this. Oh, and by the way, this has a national coloration, of course, because what the Poles say is <clears throat> that the deep essence of Marxism is this business about alienation from oneself, which is recoverable through A, labor, or B, conserva- B, uh, a labor or B conservative idealization of the past. Right? One of those things, or maybe both at the same time. And then you've got a really happy sort of conservative left-wing household, like all my friends. Um, that's what the Poles say. And the Czechs say, um, we actually understand the economics of Marxism better than the comrades in Russia, which is not, that wasn't a good move to make in 1968. But the reason they could make it was the naivete that what was at stake was still actually Marxism as such. That's, that was the kind of fundamental tactical mistake of the revisionists, to believe that we were really having a conversation about Marxism. Brezhnev explains very clearly that that's not what's happening. Brezhnev, and now Brezhnev is going to become the hero of the rest of this lecture. If you've made it thus far and you've sympathized, you know, if you sympathize with, with Lenin, you can sympathize with Brezhnev. Okay? So Brezhnev is going to be the major intellectual hero of the rest of this, of this lecture. <laughs> um, you, you, you laugh, but he made our world, and I've got 10 minutes to prove it. Um, Brezhnev redefines Marxism um, in 1968 as economic determinism in a very special sense, in a very special pragmatic sense. From 1968, when the Soviet Union has to intervene in Czechoslovakia, from its point of view has to, through the early 1970s, um, Brezhnev, by way of, of the statement which regarded us as doctrine, and as way as a number of, of exam- by way of a number of examples of guidance he gave to East European leaders, expressed what Marxism was going to mean in the future. Essentially, it's a kind of, um, it's the idea that we are going to feed the workers, we're going to keep the workers happy, um, and there is no alternative to the system as it stands now. Right? So it's a kind of economic determinism, where the determinism is provided not by an understanding of history, but provided by the Warsaw Pact, provided by the Red Army, and the economics is, is essentially a kind of con- consumerist political economy. We will use kielbasa where we can, and we will use guns when we have to. 
Now, this, this doctrine has um, its own application in the international political economy. And the application in the national political economy essentially ends up undoing the system. In the 1920s, when you looked out from, say, the point of view of 1917, 18, 19, 20, 21, the very last moment, 22, 23, there was no world revolution. That forces you back to socialism in one country, um, a phrase which Stalin coined in 1924. Uh, there's no world revolution in the world, so you're forced back into creating the Soviet Union. In the 1970s, um, you look out into the world, and what you realize is the world doesn't really have debt forgiveness. And this business that the Poles and the Hungarians and the East Germans got themselves into, borrowing a lot of money in order to try to do what Brezhnev told them to do, borrowing a lot of money in order to make consumer goods, turns out to have a kind of price. And that price is that rather rather than being locked out of the world, in a socialism of one country, you're now forced to engage with the world. The world has political leverage over you in a way that the system did not, did not, um, did not anticipate. So the logic of the 1920s forces you into, see now this is my economic determinist moment, forces you into socialism in one country. Whereas uh, debts in the 1970s force you into a posture of essentially socialism in no country. That's what's going to come next. So socialism in one country is a response to one globalization. Um, socialism in no countries is a response to the second. Now, but that denudes the entire thing of its thought. And I, and I want to get close to the close here by talking a minute uh, for a moment about the way that intellectual history continues in the 1970s and 1980s. What's very curious about this is that there is a revolution. There's yet another one, um, Solidarity in Poland in 1980 and 1981. And the interesting thing about this revolution is that, and I'm looking around really closely now to see if Polish friends of a certain generation are here, and they're not happily, you can recode it very easily as a Marxist revolution. Now, I'm aware that like, this claim was made in, you know, in, in, in certain periodicals where the type was blue in Great Britain um, at the time, uh, but I think there's actually something to it. The solidarity in 1980 was the only working class history and the working class revolution in the history of the world. There wasn't one before that. There wasn't one after that. There probably isn't going to be another one after that. It's the only one in other respects. And that's a pretty important respect. It comes very close to fulfilling Marx's expectations. It's a working class which makes economic claims, but also non-economic claims. It's a working class which represents itself but it's also a labor union which is open to the entire society. It's a working class which interacts with intellectuals, not treating them as leaders, but, but engaging them in the movement itself. And it's even a working class which uses the word alienation um, rather a lot. Uh, and the, the solidarity period of 1980 and 1981, at least if you measure it by the suicide and the alcoholism statistics, was actually a measurable decrease in alienation insofar as these things can be said. Now, solidarity is crushed, but it comes back in 1988, then comes back in in 1989, and it's it's the beginning of the end. Now, here's where I want to leave us. What happens to Marxism then? What happens with the so-called fall of the Berlin Wall, which is actually the end, not the beginning? What happens to Marxism when communism comes to, when these regimes come to an end in Eastern Europe? The claim that I want to make is that nothing, nothing, nothing happens to Marxism then, that this is irrelevant for Marxism. Nobody who, who ran these regimes believed in Marxism at that point. Nobody who was a citizen of these states believed in Marxism at that point. Certainly, the end of the regimes were significant. They brought about dramatic political, social, and economic change. Certainly, the end of the regimes were significant. Um, the end of the regimes brought about recollections and confrontations with the past. It brought, the end of the, it, brought, it brought the end of friendship. It brought the end of families. It created all kinds of new stratifications. It was significant. But I think the last thing you'd really want to say is that it brought an end to Marxism. 
because Marxism didn't really exist in these places, not as any kind of not as any kind of firm belief anyway. Where it was dead, it stayed dead. It was dead in Poland. It stayed dead in Poland at least for a while. Where it was still alive, like in Yugoslavia, it stayed alive. The Yugoslav philosophers who were concerned with Marxism in the 70s and 80s are still with us, and they're still, for the most part, concerned with Marxism. Think of Slavoj Žižek. Why do we, and this is my Western we, why do we have this dramatic idea that 1989 history came to an end or some such crazy thing? Right? Why do we think that this was a moment where Marxism ceased? Why, for, why is that a period for us? I think it's a period for us for purely self-centered, narcissistic reasons. If we're on the left, and 1989 was the moment, was really our last moment to admit that maybe we had been wrong in identifying with these regimes. If we're on a certain kind of left, you know, we had, we had 1939, we had 1956, we had 1968, we had 1980. 1989 was really the last chance. And, those, and, and, the, and many people took it. If you're on the right, 1989 is your best chance for triumph, right? And people took that chance as well. But what the left and the right and the West had in common was they had a common need to see this as some kind of dramatic turning point, because biographically for them, it very often was. For them, for whom Marxism meant something, it was perhaps a meaningful turning point. But in the real world, where Marxism had left its mark, perhaps perhaps less so. And so this is the, this is the kind of look into the future that I want to leave you with. I think it's turned out that the end of the Soviet Union has mattered. The end of communism in Eastern Europe and, and the end of the Soviet Union a couple of years later has mattered, but not at all in the way we expected at the time. Um, and not at all in a way which actually undermines Marxism, or at least not quite so much as we might think. So if, if we think a bit, what, what's, what remains? A good deal seems to remain. So for example, in Russia, what remains from the total side of Marxism, what remains from um, Leninism, is a certain kind of practice of power, what, what people got very good at. And I think there's another legacy in Russia, but also in China, um, and indeed uh, r- around the world. I think it turns out that Leninism served a kind of historical function. So Leninism, just to kind of recapitulate it, to go back, Leninism is a formula for rising to power by taking advantage of a dramatic moment, for example, a war, a civil war, um, appealing, for example, to the peasants and the nation, always done by people who admit that they actually don't care about peasants and nations, um, which then sets the stage a few decades on for capitalism, which is run by people who admit that they care nothing about regulations and laws. In other words, Leninism um, is a kind of socialism without the pro- proletariat, which sets the stage for a capitalism without civil society. That seems to have been its historical function. And insofar as that's true, then something of that system remains. And as different as Russia and China are, I think that captures a bit of the reality in each of them. Um, Now, this idea of capitalism without liberalism isn't just a a sort of reality. I think it's also rather influential as a model. Um, So let me repeat. I think the end of the Soviet Union has affected the West, but not in the way we expected. What's happened, at least in the United States, and I'll I'll stay in the US for this argument, is that the end of the Soviet Union has actually pushed us dramatically away from liberalism. Um, It's pushed us towards China, which has become an implicit model. And the removal of the Soviet Union has removed the competition to the left, um, which meant that even Republican administrations, down through Reagan, had to endorse some kind of welfare state. That's now gone with the Soviet Union. And we are left, um, we're, we're left with an, a system which justifies itself ideologically in a way, you know, if you'll pardon this, because it's not, I don't think it's too much of an exaggeration, which, which justifies itself in a way which is very much like vulgar Marxism. <laughs> that is, the claim, remember, think back to Brezhnev, he's, he's our intellectual hero, the claim that there's no alternative, 
and the claim that the only thing which really matters is is consumerism, with the accompanying claims um, of you know perhaps some class conflict, although you invert who's on the top and who's on the bottom, and the very important claim that there's just one big story, this claim of totality. If that doesn't sound familiar to you, then you know we're living in different intellectual and political worlds, which I admit is entirely possible. Now that that of course the people who do that call everyone else Marxists, but that's the less thing. That's the la- like when someone you know when a British politician calls another British politician a Marxist because he supports price supports in energy supplies or whatever. That's the kind of thing we need not to pay attention to if we want to really understand what's left from Marxism, which I think is turns out is rather a lot. So um, the, the, the Brezhnevian Marxism, the late Marxism, is still with us. It's just been it's been apportioned up. Um, Russia has the technique of power and some other things. China has populism by consumerism, right? Some other things. And the United States has the ideology, you know, a bit inverted. Now, these are, of course, different systems. They have different vulnerabilities. The tricks in Russia can run out. The food in China can run out. Um, the ideology in, in the United States might somehow find some contradiction. Now, what happens then with the anti-Marxists? If, I, if, I'm, if I'm right, and I'm sure we'll be discussing this, but if I'm right and, and nothing happened to Marxism in 1989, and that we're living, all of us, essentially, in a kind of long, unending Brezhnevian nightmare, um, if, if that's true, then you might be thinking, well, what about the heroic dissidents? What about the dissidents? Um, what about the people who actually brought communism to an end? What about their ideas? And here I think something very interesting has happened, which is worth contemplating on sort of purely philosophical or ethical grounds. The basic opposition to Marxism which the dissidents found in the 1970s, let's say, was an opposition to this kind of vulgar determinism, an opposition to this kind of totalist view of the world. What they said was, even though we don't have control, we will take responsibility. That was the central idea of anti-politics. We don't have control of what's happening in our societies, but nevertheless, we will take responsibility. Adam Michnik put this point as, I'm going to behave, I'm going to act as if I were Free, right? In Havel's famous essay about the greengrocer, the idea that you take down the sign which says workers of the world unite, that doesn't mean you actually control anything. It means that you're taking responsibility for your own shop front. Right? So their idea is you, you take the idea of the, the, the late socialist, the communist idea, that we have control but not responsibility, and you reverse it. Because you have control but not responsibility as a communist because, in fact, you exercise state power. But all the responsibility has been, has been fobbed off onto history as such. Right? It's not you. It's history. The history what made you do it. Whereas the dissidents say, we accept we don't have control, but we're going to take responsibility anyway. And it's, a very, it's a very noble idea. It's, I think it's responsible for the rebuilding of liberalism, not just there, but also in the West. It stands behind a lot of the strength that human rights ideas have now. The ability human rights ideas have to function without the state or against the state has a lot to do, I think, with that particular inversion. We will take responsibility even though we don't have control, precisely because we don't have control. Now, what's happened after 1989, I think, is that that, very, that rather beautiful and also effective idea um, has, has suffered um, a strange and dialectical fate. Um, at the hands of the friends of the dissidents in the West, but also, interestingly, at the hands of the dissidents themselves, this, this idea of responsibility um, and control has become confused, such that they have accepted the, the, the notion that, um, that, that capitalism is a kind of system from which there is no alternative and in which you can't take responsibility. So this notion that after 1989 you had to carry out certain kinds of economic reforms. I say this, by the way, as someone who was in favor of those reforms. But the notion that you had to carry them out, that there is no alternative, in effect there is no responsibility because they're historical laws, that was widely accepted in 1989 and 1990. And once that pill was swallowed, a lot of other things followed as well. 
So the basic mistake then the dissidents make, and then the basic mistake that Americans and others make following them or along with them, I think, is to say after 1989, it's not that that what happened in 89 or what should have happened in 89 um, is not that Marxism lost. It's what should what the claim that should have been made is that ideas of totality lost. And I think what's actually happened is that by saying that Marxism lost, we get to keep our own ideas of totality. We imagine that you know, life is just a com- competition between ideas of totality, and ours happen to turn out. You know, we have the we have the one we have the alternative alternative Lozikite, which actually won out in the end. It's our alternativelessness which turned out to be victorious. Now, I'm trying to claim, as I'm sure you've noticed dialectically, that that's actually the victory of Marxism. Um, that Marxism, in a certain form, won by losing. Okay. Now, the very last flourish, if you'll, if you'll allow me, this will really be very brief. This has all been about one strand of Marxism, the strand of Marxism that won in, 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 in history, the strand of Marxism which triumphed in the Soviet Union and in various forms in, in, in China, and I think now in these various slightly slumbering ways is still with us. What about the alienation form? Or to ask a question at a philosophical level, um, is it possible that some part of Marxism can be revived? Would that be legitimate? Would that be useful? Uh, let me put this as a series of rhetorical questions. Would it be useful in politics to have some kind of structured vocabulary to talk about inequality, as opposed to some, just being some sort of state of exception? Would it be useful in the continental politics of the European Union to have some kind of unit of analysis besides the nation state? Would it be useful if in discussing, for example, um, the American politics of the economy, it would be useful to have the idea of ideology, where ideology means the very precise thing that you're not aware of how your position in the world affects your ideas? Uh, would it be useful to go back to alienation and ethics to have the idea that work and alienation have something to do with each other and that one might result the other? In other words, is there something here that could possibly be recovered? Now, it, it seems to me that there are reasons to be doubtful, not just practical reasons. And the practical reasons, by the way, as not, you'll, you'll see, I don't think Marxism is dead. I think the total version won in various unarticulated ways. It's that which makes me a little bit doubtful. It's also the concern with, it's, 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 the, it's the realization that the problem of totality is within Marx, Marx himself. It's Marx who has the, has the notion that there really is a human nature, there really is an external nature, it really could all be resolved somehow. Um, that, I think, is, is, is within Marx. The question is whether that can be pluralized, whether Marx can in fact become a part of some kind of larger discussion. Or to quote my, my old teacher, as Mick was nice enough to mention, um, Leszek Wolkowski, at the very end of his Main Currents of Marxism, which has the interesting characteristic of being just as intelligent as the subject it treats, Kolkowski writes, if socialism is to be more than a totalitarian prison, it can only be a system of compromises between different values that limit one another. In other words, it has to be part of some kind of irreducibly pluralist system of, of thought and action. Could Marxism be part of some such plurality? Would it be useful and reasonable to deploy it as a form of political analysis? Can we possibly find our way back to some kind of concern for, for human alienation? Now, I'm going to step back and answer this question now empirically as, as a historian. Something rather interesting has happened. The country in Europe, which Marx and Engels had a particular sympathy for, that is to say Poland, the country in Europe which suffered, along with, I would say, Ukraine and Belarus, the most from Marxist systems, think only of, of, of multiple occupation, think of cutting, think of deportations, um, the country in which the revolution against Marxism-Leninism began, solidarity, is also home to, at the moment, the largest independent civil society movement in Eastern Europe, which is called political critique. And they, interestingly enough, 
have revived precisely the current of Polish anthropology that I was talking about. The people who you know, were forgotten, but perhaps you know, when to, within the next 2,000 years might be revived again. They have revived precisely these people, Stanisław Brzozowski, Kazimierz Kalaskraus, who think of Marxism as a matter of overcoming individual rather than collective alienation, and who are rather conservative about the sources of their values. Um, this is interesting. I mean, Brzozowski, by the way, is, the most, is probably the single most interesting Marxist after Marx, with the possible exception of Lukács. He's worth, he's worth reading. It was Brzozowski who first made the distinction between Marx and Engels, I think correctly, a distinction in the event on which this, this lecture hangs. Um, Brzozowski was also someone who went through the entire history of ideas of the West within a lifetime that ended, as I've already said, within 33 years. He died a Catholic. He was a, so he was a biographical pluralist as well as everything else. These are people who, whatever else they're doing, um, they have adopted Marxists, and they've used them to pry apart big stories, and they've used them to carry out a certain kind of labor. Um, the person who runs this organization now has a regular column in the New York Times, which you will now be sure to notice. Um, so in a certain way, in a certain way, in a modest way, but, a, but, a, but an unmistakable way, Marxism is back and in a rather surprising place. Not as Marx himself, but as humanist interpreters of other humanist interpreters people who are laboring for meaning. So I'm going to conclude just by noting this. One of my points here was to try to move all the way back to being a historian and just say something modest and historical about Marxism. So the modest and historical note I'm going to close on is that in this respect, at least, just as a matter of observation, Marxism's back. Thank you. Why don't, why don't I sit? Why don't you, why don't, you want to come up here? No, no I don't mind. I don't. Okay. Um, while people very quickly uh, and quietly uh, leave, if they could, uh, we'll start taking the start taking questions from the floor. A number of hands have already gone up. I, I, I normally love to abuse my position as chair, but I won't. At least this one time. Why don't I begin with the person who's got three fingers up there? That's interesting. And then, uh, <laughs> is that a sign or something? That's SWP. And then, um, and somebody with a blue shirt over there. Yeah, please, sir. Yeah. yeah if, you could, if you could just tell me who you are. Yeah. If you... My name is David. I just I work in the local area. My question was about sort of, does Marxism now accept that although a revolution may uh, push a country forward economically, it also pushes the political system back as well? So, in fact, you get a situation such as Stalin was called the Red Tsar. Reds are unfortunately in those situations, particularly when there's a lot of fear around, and there's a, almost a, a, a lack of trust between the population and the actual leaders. You get a situation that will lead to a lot, a lot of the times sort of massacres. And the example of this would be, say, when the conqueror after 1066, who led to the harrying of the North, which can have a lot of uh, similarity with Stalin. Uh, just the only difference would be that. He, right. Stalin was chief. It's okay. It's good. It's good. William Conqueror is an early Stalinist. I like that. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Donald Davidson. Well, uh, this, well, this is a, a well, counterfactual history. So, I mean, what if um, the Red Army had won the Battle of Warsaw in, <laughs> in 1920? Because I think the clear intention, of course, was that they were going to push on to Germany. So, um, it, uh, um, it's interesting what's. Uh, it, how your or your, your schema would would, would okay. change if that if that had happened? Okay, counterfactual on a point there. Yeah, okay. maybe I should. Why don't you start? So, 
On the first question, does Marxism accept? I mean, it should be clear that I'm not speaking to you as an apostle. I'm not going to. I'm not going to elucidate doctrine. I'm not going to tell you what's in or what's out. And and I think, rather critically, um, for the kind of claim I'm trying to make anyway, if Marxism is going to matter, um, which which I think it does already, again in certain respects. But if it's going to matter, it's going to matter precisely because it's no longer a body of doctrine. I mean, what what went wrong and what we were what people are still doing in the West all the way through, is trying to find ways of revising the doctrine to account for various things that happened, which were either morally bad or which contravened predictions. You know, it's a little bit like trying to, like trying to correct the Ptolemaic system or whatever. Like you have the system, things go wrong ethically or factually, and then you keep ticking, you say, okay, well, not the late Marx, the early Marx, not this Marx, the other Marx. You know, Marx predicted this, but he also predicted that. I prefer this school. You know, Marxism isn't a system. It's only a method, right? That was a kind of late classic, which people still use. Only a method, you know. So therefore, it doesn't have predictions. It's just a way of looking at the world. Uh, the, all these fallback positions, I think, have to, will have to fall away. I mean, if Marxism is going to function in a, in a, in a sort of pluralist political world, it's, not going to be precise, it's going to be precisely the case that no one is defending it as a total whole, right? So your question, in that sense, wouldn't be meaningful. It, you, you wouldn't say, would Marxism accept because there's, there can't be Marxism in that sense anymore as a, as a, total, as a total doctrine, right? So I, I would then have to know which Marxist you're asking about or, you know, because... Um, but, but then there's an interesting part of your question. I mean, I think a very interesting part, the empirical part. The Marxists I'm talking about at the very end. What's interesting about these guys and these women um, is that they are all post-communist in the literal sense of the word. That is, they're too young to have experienced communism. So they know their history of communism in Poland you know, much better than we do. They know what happened. I mean, it was their grandparents that were deported or shot. But they are beyond the system. Um, so they're, what, they're beyond is, what they're beyond is a kind of anti-communism experience, which is where their parents and the older generation still are. And not that much older, but just a little bit older. So for, for them, what's happened is that Marxism has become, or Mar- individual Marxists in particular, have become a source for ideas or a source, or a source for debate. So for them, you know, they no longer care about this, the premise, like what does Marxism have to do about this or that. It, it's, just, it's become a sort of source of, of inspiration. On the counterfactual, um, I mean, it's, it, if, if the Red Army had gotten to Berlin, I think I, I tend to think that would have been bad rather than good. Um, not, no, not just for Berlin, um, but for the Red Army. Um, that is to say, it's hard for me to imagine the Soviet Union could work as it did. I think because of this, the, the, because of failure. Precisely because of the loss to Poland, the Red Army lost to the Polish Army in, in in one of the sort of least remembered facts. The Red Army didn't lose again until Afghanistan, but they lost to the Polish Army in 1920, and that had the effect of forcing the Soviet Union to become a state rather than a revolution. I tend to think that it precisely could serve. We know that it could survive because it did, but I tend to think that one of the only ways it could have survived was precisely as that kind of developmental dictatorship. That if it had been some kind of union that went from Kazakhstan all the way to Germany and Bohemia. The German and Bohemian bits would have broken off very quickly, and the thing probably wouldn't have survived as long as it did. So I think it would, you're right that they were aiming for Berlin. I mean, that's what all the propaganda says, and that's the stuff they were carrying with them indicates that very clearly. But if they'd gotten there, I don't, I don't think that would have been good for the system. But you know, we're, we're in counterfactual world now. A lot of things were, po- I mean, one thing which is interesting about your question is a lot of things were possible in 1919, 1920, which are, unima- which are unimaginable. You know, things happened in 1919 and 1920, which were unimaginable. 
and which are unimaginable, mm-hmm. which make this counterfactual business even harder than it is mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. The Soviet Union is actually sort of unimaginable, mm-hmm. um, and yet it happened. You know, and that's not the only example. Okay, I got some somebody up there. Yeah, have you got the mic, and then somebody, and Mary down here. Can you, give him, can you give this gentleman a microphone? Sorry, it's just we can't hear you down here. Thanks very much. Thank, thank you. The question is about uh, Marx's influence <coughs> in the West. I'm thinking about Otto von Bismarck's welfare state in the 1890s and uh, Asquith's 1908 Liberal government in the UK. Do you feel that these welfare states were as part to fend off uh, Marx's ideology uh, impacting upon the industrialised classes? Okay, right. Uh, Mary, Mary Kelder. Um... I was wondering, did actually the Soviet system have anything to do with Marxism? Um, if you think about the Soviet system... Oh, oh, oh no, Mary, there went 50 minutes of my lecture. I know, that's why I'm asking you. Was, wasn't it, I'm very guilty. Um, I mean, wasn't it influenced by the experience of the war and the heritage of the Tsarist state? Mm-hmm. And it was legitimised by Marxism, but actually the system had very little to do with ideas of socialism, and I'm thinking of uh, Oscar Langer's idea that really what it was, was a war economy, like a capitalist economy in wartime, not a socialist system. Hmm. Okay, right. Why don't you pick those two up, Anton? So, uh, you, you won't be surprised that my answer to your question is, is, is yes. I mean, the, the, the Second Reich had a very interesting sort of politics whereby the largest political party was actually the SPD. I mean, they, they, as, soon as, as soon as the anti-socialist law was lifted and they were allowed to run for office in the meaningless, admittedly meaningless parliament, they got more votes than anyone else. And that led to this very interesting kind of half-imaginary polity where the function of the, the Social Democratic Party of Germany was to make clear to the authorities how the working class needed to be bought off, basically, like how far you needed to go. So, yeah, I think it's very, it's very clearly a, a, a case where the, the, the Espada, rather than being revolutionaries, they're a kind of translator. You know, they exist to translate the industrialization to the people who are actually in charge, because that's what they do. And, it, it, and as, a kind of, as a kind of equilibrium, it, 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 it might have been worse. In Britain, I think you, you have an autonomous Christian socialist current, which is, uh, which is a bit separate. And I don't know enough about British history to, to consider how calculating that, that might have been. But I think it, in Britain, you have the, there is a difference that, there, that, that Marxism actually focuses the issue a little bit, because the Marxists are talking about a revolution in the near future. I mean, even if they are, in fact, newspaper editors, as I was making fun of them in the case of Karl Kautsky and the, and the SPD, they are indeed talking about a revolution. And talk of revolution as a way of focusing the mind. Um, you, want to, you want to make sure that that... Ha- the first thing you want to do is you might want to make sure the revolution doesn't happen, and then you go on to satisfying people after that. So that, I think that's a difference on the continent. Um, I mean, on this, I'm obviously going to say on the one hand, on the other hand, because, of course, everything you say is true, but there's a multiplicity of things that lead to the creation of the Soviet Union. I mean, of course, you have... Um, kind of crisis, a kind of crisis management during the war itself, during the Civil War. And then, of course, you know, in the first few years after that, you have another compromise, which is with the state of property as it is. But I think there are two critical ways in which Marxism does matter. I do think they're critical. The first is the decision to have a revolution at all. Now, where did that come from? The decision to have a revolution at all didn't come out of 
the traditional ruling classes of Russia. The tradition to have a revolution at all came from Lenin and Trotsky and a few of their friends. And they, the reason why they believed in that revolution was because they'd read certain books and had certain comrades. So I, I do think that much as you can say there are continuities from the previous legal system, there are continuities from, you know, the, from the previous military, there are certain objective circumstances they would have reacted to the way other people reacted to. The idea of actually having a revolution um, in the name of the working class, that comes from Marxists, and I think that's pretty unambiguous. But then the second revolution that I'm talking about also, I think, I think that has a non-generic content as well. I mean... After collectivization, many other people collectivized or did something similar, and you know about this more than I do. But the, the justification for collectivization in the Soviet Union is precisely that we are sure what kind of economic system is superior and what kind is inferior. And what they thought was superior was an industrialized capitalist system. And the closest they could do was some kind of, some kind of copy of that. And that's what they aimed for. I mean, they aimed for Henry Ford, except we're going to make it take less time. We're going we're to create it rather than waiting for it to happen. And that was informed by a moral vision, which was also, I think, distinctly Marxist. The idea that this is not only pushing us forward in progress in some kind of liberal sense of going up the steps of the ladder, but that there really is some kind of utopia at the end of this. They believed that for a while. Many of them believed that for quite a long time. And I do think it's hard, it's hard to get into the minds of the people who are carrying out collectivization. I don't just mean the people at the top. I mean, also people who experienced it, including the people who looked at the starving. I mean, there were people who looked at the starving and said, this is, you know, they could look at the starving and say, that's fine, because this, is the pri- this price is worth paying for what's going to follow. And where do they have the idea of what's going to follow? I mean, it's not from anything they saw. It's only from what they read. You know, it's only from this idea that in doing away with property and doing away with the division of labor, there, there is actually some kind of objectively superior system waiting for you at the end. So I do think, you know, you're, you're absolutely right about, you couldn't write the history of the 1920s without accounting for all of these things that are either Russian or, or so to speak, generic. But the two revolutions, the political one and the social one, I don't see how you get to those decision points without Marxism. Uh, yeah, there's a question there. Yeah, if you can get one. Anybody from at the top there? Yeah, please, I've got one too. Yeah, uh, Professor, thank you very much for this. I, uh, I teach here at the LSE in East European History, and I'm also a Marxist, which will make the question hopefully yeah, interesting. I'll try to be brief. I actually found myself surprised how much I uh, agreed with much of your analysis. Oh, but, why, why would you be surprised? <laughs> <laughs> But doesn't, because isn't, doesn't, doesn't Marxism embrace everything? Why, yeah. well, how, how is surprise even possible? Let him ask the uh, question. Well, this is the, going to be the question. Um, in a sense, <laughs> what, what I find um, is, is the, the central claim in Marx is possibly not so much that the ideas that Marx himself put forward need to be total because um, Marx formulated them in a totality, but because uh, capitalism is the first uh, total system in world history in the sense that it embraces all spheres of life across the globe. And so, therefore, um, the question I would pose is, isn't the uh, compulsion to seek totality when you read Marx um, the compulsion to respond to a total system rather than a system of ideas? Does that make sense? Maybe. Okay. (laughs) I'll leave it there. Okay. I'm going to add not another point. I'm not going to make confessions about my past or anybody. Um, well, there are other people's pasts as well. Well, there are. There are. I mean, I, I, I take your point towards the very end there. I mean, the kind of paradox or the dialectic of Marxism winning by losing. And you might say 1917 was Marxism lost then by winning. If you want to reverse the argument, which is an equally good Menshevik argument to make, as you know. 
Um, and I can clearly go along with what you said there, Tim, on, uh, the, on the relevance of Marxism, the importance of Marxism, the fact that it didn't die, and all sorts of other arguments. In fact, you could say in an era of global capitalism, maybe Marxism in some critical empirical form has more to say about the world now than it ever had to say about the Cold War. In fact, a lot of, most of the Marx analysis of the Cold War was used, actually more, more or less hopeless. So I'm looking at Mary Calder there, but I'm not looking at you, Mary. You know what I mean. It was, it, it was very, Marxism had a real problem with the Cold War for all sorts of reasons. But I think there's a much bigger problem, though, actually, and I just, I just want to get your thoughts on this. It's not whether Marxism as an intellectual project is relevant. It can say some wonderful things about alienation, the division of labor, all, all the other kinds of things which you can do. I, I accept that without, without, without question. It just is a, there's a bigger question, though. Is socialism economically feasible? Seems to me a more difficult question to try and answer. Because if there's a lesson, if there are any lessons to be drawn from the Soviet experience, it isn't. It was horrible, totalitarian, did disgusting things to lots and lots of people, all of which is true. But I suppose people came away with the kind of the original fundamental essentialist argument. Is, so, is socialism economically feasible anyway? Can you, I mean, and markets, for all of their faults, produce a hell of a lot of wealth. Uh, they generate a lot of incentives. And I suppose that's, and that was also the question asked by quite a lot of the East European reformers as well, if you remember. You know, going Langer and a whole bunch of others who came through the 50s and 60s as, can you have socialism without markets? Now, the question is people are asking today is, is socialism economically feasible at all? Can you create the wealth creation, the incentive structures? And that seems to me a much more difficult question that Marxists, whether they're living in Poland today or in Western Europe or the United States, haven't really, it seems to me, yet provided a full and complete answer to. So... I'm, I'm, on the first, on the Marxist question, I mean, I, I would, I would say actually, I mean, if we're on this level, Marxism isn't a system of thought. So I think you're posing, like, if we're going to be Marxist about this, you're not posing the question in a Marxist way. Mm. Marxist, Marxism isn't a system of thought. Marxism is a series of rhetorical devices which, when read correctly, allow you to understand that the only true understanding that you might have is arrives when you see how whatever thoughts and, and moral claims you have are located in a particular historical moment. So none of the claims in Marxism are themselves truth claims. They only point you towards this possibility of understanding. So you, you can't, I don't think as a Marxist, begin the premise, with the premise of um, it's a system of thought, is it total or, or, or is it not? Now, in terms of Marxist historical understanding, I think what you say would also be flipped around. I mean, you're, I think you're absolutely right, although it's a little bit of a Luxembourgist reading, that, um, that Marx thought that capitalism was a kind of total system in an empirical sense, that it, was, that it covered the world. He didn't mean it literally, I mean, but for, as far as he was concerned, the world was basically you know, Western Europe plus a little bit of the East plus North America. But it covered the world for practical purposes, it, and therefore it had become a kind of abstraction. Yes, all well and good. But from Marx's point of view, that was what was good about it. That's why it was an opportunity. But the way that, the way that Marxism works is that history is there um, to provide this opportunity to transcend itself. Right? If, if capitalism wasn't total, it wouldn't be ready for transcendence. So it's precisely that capitalism is total that means that, we, that, means that, we, that it gives us the factories, it gives us the working classes, it gives us mass communications, it gives us all the stuff that once we're in the socialist paradise in our hammocks, we're never, we're never going to create that stuff. 
You know, the capitalism has to do that for us. So precisely the fact that it's total means that it's it is its virtue. And then Marx moves from there to saying that um, it set it, it sets us up. You know, it gives us all these things that we need, both for the transition and for the and for the socialist paradise afterwards. So yeah, it's it's that capitalism is total. You're right. The totality resides in capitalism. If you want, um, I, I'm not claiming the total reading of. I mean, as I've tried to make clear, I don't actually think that Marxism is a doctrine, really. Um, but it's also not a method in the sort of trivial empirical sense either. Um, but what, but I don't think that I, the, what I'm calling the total reading of it, I don't think is actually the correct reading. It's, a, it's been a very productive reading, though. It's been a very important reading, and I wouldn't. I also wouldn't say it's incorrect. I think it's consistent with certain important things in Marxism. Um, okay, on on socialism, can it be funded? Let me just let me take this a slightly different way. Hmm. The way that so the way the Polish anthropologists go about this, the way these these, these you know these these interesting guys um, who are concerned with individual alienation go about this is that they take a view which is kind of consistent with our exchange. Hey, careful, I'm segueing. Um, that that that, um, that 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 the that Marxism is actually there to help you penetrate these various masks of totality, right? That's their view. Mm-hmm. That any sense that you have of totality is in fact wrong because the only thing the, the thing which the only thing you have contact with is not some kind of collective alienation, but your own. And so um, they're using Marxism to try to break down general like a general problematic, like capitalism is such that there's no way to solve it, right? Uh, that's that's why they that's what that's what they find attractive. Not Marxism as a total alternative or as a historical transcendence of capitalism, but you know the 18th Brumaire type Marx. Marxism as a way of breaking down somebody else's total story. And so the total story of capitalism might be that capitalism is this thing, and that it's at risk if you try to do things to it. Which is sort of which is I, I take it um, you know the premise the, the premise of your question. I think the answer is socialism economically feasible, sort of self evident to be self evident. I mean it's. It's as, it, it, the countries which have some version of something which is a lot like socialism tend to have, you know, at least in the West, tend to have higher standards of living than ones that don't. Um, you know, the country that I live in has a much higher standard of living than Britain or the United States, and it's self-evidently socialist. Um, that is to say, Austria. So, I mean, and, and the, the, with the exception of the oil, with the exception of the oil monarchies, the, the countries in the world that have the highest standard of living are recognizably socialist in the sense of massive wealth distribution, you know, long maternity leave. Not socialist in some kind of mm. In some kind of Leninist sense, obviously, but socialist in the sense that an awful lot of wealth is being redistributed. So, I mean, I, I, not to be too much of a Marxist in the flourish of how I answer this, but it seems to me that the way you have to the way you have to pose the question is something like, can capitalism survive without socialism? Yeah. You know, because the, I mean, even I mean, Adam Smith thought, and he was right, that capitalism is parasitic upon virtues that it does not itself create. If that's true, where do you get those virtues? And how do you inculcate those virtues? How do the, how do young people grow up in a system such that they can function, survive, and thrive in capitalism. The only way to create those young people is to have something which looks an awful lot like socialism, where health and education are moved away from the concerns of the stresses and of, of their parents. So, I mean, I think the question properly put is, does, can capitalism exist without something yes. which, is, which is like socialism? It's not, I, so I don't think that capitalism generates amount of wealth X, and then you have to think about how you're going to distribute that. I think that capitalism itself is parasitic upon a whole bunch of other things, some of which you could name socialism. Hmm. Okay, I, I'm getting to eight o'clock now, so I think we've been, we've been talking and discussing for for the last hour and a half, and I know the number of questions are still out there, but I, I'm going to call the evening to an end. I mean, you will have a chance to talk to Tim at the end uh, when you're buying his book, <coughs> which I shall <coughs> advertise in a moment. I just want to make a couple of announcements. Uh, w- one of the uh, wonderful uh, 
Philip Ramon professors we had here, uh, one of the many, was Ramachandra Guha. Um, and Ramachandra Guha is coming back next week, not in this series, but to give a, a one-off lecture, which is an introduction to his uh, new two-volume biography of Gandhi, which is, is interestingly titled Gandhi Before India. And he'll be lecturing here next Monday on the 11th, so I'd like to welcome many of you along as possible to hear the great Ram Guha. Um, secondly, to announce the next lecture in this series by Tim, The Origins of Mass Killing, The Bloodlands Hypothesis, and that will be Tuesday, 21st of January, namely after Christmas. And thirdly, and here we go to the LSE pitch, uh, the book is on sale, The Bloodlands, which is Tim's very best-selling book, many prizes, is on sale outside as a paperback. If you want to buy it out there and then bring it back up here again, Tim will sit at this table for a while and sign, sign the copies. If you want to come and talk to him anyway, I think you can do so without buying the book, but it would help. Uh, um, but anyway, uh, just to thank you for some of your great questions, but in particular to thank Tim for the second great lecture in this great series. Tim, thank you once again. <laughs>